Hello and welcome, and thank you for joining us for what we hope will be an interesting and informative discussion and around some of the latest data in rheumatology. My name is Professor Peter Nash from beautiful downtown Brisbane, Griffith University, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Clinical Professor of Medicine, Professor Roy Fleischman from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in the USA. Hi, Roy. Thanks for giving up your time. We appreciate it greatly. We're going to be talking about his study recently published in J Rheumatology, uh, Radiographic Progression of Structural Joint Damage Over Five Years of Baricitinib Treatment in Patients with Rheumatoid Arthritis. Let's get a bit of background, Roy. How has COVID affected your practice? How COVID's affected the use of JAKS and uh, the vaccination story with JAKS in your part of the world? That's a complicated question. You have three, three <laughs> answers in there. So COVID has affected us as it has affected everyone else. Uh, currently, we're in a downturn. We have very little uh, relative uh, infection rate. Uh, so we, we're doing pretty well. We seem to have gotten over the Delta uh, surge. Um, uh, of course, the, fact, the practice was uh, impacted significantly during the depth of the uh, pandemic uh, with uh, patients not willing to come in or uh, unable to come in. Uh, but that has uh, reversed and we're pretty much back to normal. Everyone's been vaccinated or at least they tell me they've been vaccinated. Uh, I don't know about all the patients, uh, probably, uh, probably not. As a matter of fact, I know not. Uh, there are certain uh, segments of the population in Texas that are reluctant, uh, which is ultra conservatives, uh, as you know. Now we have some uh, minorities that are reluctant to be uh, vaccinated uh, for reasons that they think are, are, are reasonable. And we also have patients who have COVID who really don't want to get the vaccination, although tell them that they'll be super, super secure if they do get the vaccination. How has it affected us uh, with respect to JAX? Um, it actually hasn't. Um, so uh, the reason why I say that was, is, as I'm sure you know, um, there was a, a presentation at ULAR and a publication, uh, I think it was an ANR, uh, that uh, the vaccinate, the patients who are on different biologics to target synthetics, and uh, how did they do with uh, uh, COVID? And that uh, uh, publication uh, strongly stated that rituximab is not a good drug to be on if you're going to be vaccinated. And I think, and it also suggests the jacks are are are, are difficulty. Uh, that was interesting. Um, the, there was a letter to the editor from Ron van Wollenhoven, who I know you know, uh, who asked a very interesting question. Uh, the study was done and looked at patients who required oxygenation or hospitalization or ventilation. What was their medication on when they got, what were they on when they got sick? And that's suggested that the odds ratio of having a worse outcome with uh, JAKS uh, was actually uh, two, it was, it was worse. 
The question he asked was, what about patients who continue the JACs versus those who discontinue the JACs? I don't know if you saw that, that letter to the editor in the reply. Reply was very interesting because Reply actually went into that and said, well, we were able to subset the population. I can't remember the exact numbers, but if there were 300 patients who were in JAC, 200 stopped and 100 continued. And the 200 who stopped, uh, they did have more difficulty with hospital, hospitalization, uh, oxygenation, ventilation, uh, and mortality, as a matter of fact. Those who continued had almost nothing, almost nothing. And you would think that that's correct because the JACs actually should be somewhat protective from COVID. So in speaking to patients, I tell them, well, the American College of Rheumatology, the Global Alliance Rheumatology strongly suggests you stop the JAC, but you have to be out of your mind if you do that because here's the data. <laughs> And the data is, and, if you're doing well, continue the jack. And the berry is now being used as a treatment for COVID. <laughs> and berry is being treated for, for, uh, for COVID. There's also some information about tofacitinib, uh, that tofacitinib is actually helpful as well. I haven't seen any with rupatacinib, but I would assume that it would be uh, similar. Now, the big, gorilla in, yeah, the big gorilla in the room, has oral surveillance affected American rheumatologists practice prescribing habits, or are they waiting to see the peer-reviewed paper? Okay, the peer-reviewed paper has been submitted. The revision has been done. Uh, the revision has been submitted, and I'm pretty sure that it'll be accepted. Uh, this iteration of it will be accepted shortly. Uh, so it should appear shortly, I would think. Um, there are four or five presentations at ACR on oral surveillance. Yep. Um, and uh, I am actually giving the main primary talk, which of course Euler rejected and which ACR accepted as a poster. All the sub-analysis are orals. <laughs> You can explain that one to me, um, you know, then, then you're better than every one of us I've spoken to. Uh, oral surveillance is a very interesting study. Uh, and uh, in our group, we have a very large group. We have 20 rheumatologists. Uh, there is mixed opinion. Um, if you really look at the data from oral surveillance, this is a very, very specific population. It's an older population of cardiovascular risk. Um, and uh, the EMA has already come out with their, with their suggestions, which are reasonable. Um, there were not statistical differences, incidentally, in terms of mace or malignancy or uh, VTEs and oral surveillance for, for tofacitinib versus uh, uh, the TNF inhibitors. But the primary outcome of the study was a little unusual, not unusual for the FDA. It was the upper limit of the confidence interval combined TNF uh, versus TNF, uh, uh, combined TOFA versus TNF. Uh, and the upper limit of the confidence interval was higher than 1.8, which was the preset determination. But you'll see all the data and actually the confidence intervals overlap. So there is a numerical difference with TNF, which favors TNF over TOFA, I think that's very clear. 
Um, but one of the things that we talk about in the presentation, the number needed to harm, uh, one of your favorite uh, uh, little uh, <laughs> thoughts, as a matter of fact. And the number needed to harm for mace is over 550. So you have to treat 550 more patients for a year with tofacitinib to have one more event than you would have with, with a, a TNF. And for malignancy, it's uh, about 270, if I remember correctly. It's around there. So uh, the, those are large numbers, right? So the point that the EMA said was, well, you know, if you're over 65, and you have any history of smoking, that's the group that's at risk. And in that group, speak to the patient, maybe you should use a jack after you use other, uh, other agents. And I don't think that that's unreasonable. I mean, we start patients on methotrexate and after methotrexate, uh, you go to Tarkus synthetic or biologic. A lot of the patients like the uh, Tarkus synthetics quickly. But the truth of the matter is, is if you take a look at one versus the other, they're both good, right? Uh, in oral strategy, uh, TOFA was uh, similar to starting at alimumab. Uh, and with epatacinib, select compare, as you know, epatacinib was uh, superior. Uh, and in RAB, baricinib, baricinib was superior, but a little bit superior. So why not go to a TNF and patients older who has a history of smoking or other risk factors? But under the age of 65, if the patient hasn't smoked, see the incident rates in all these orals on base, malignancy, BTE, the risk is really, really low. Yeah. So it hasn't changed my practice, but it has changed some because some interpret this study as showing that there is an increased risk of malignancy in mace. I don't yeah. think that's true. I think that TNFs reduce, reduce the risk and TNFs don't reduce it quite as much. Yes, and those that don't read the fine print see the FDA slap against a, a class, all jacks, and then all inflammatory diseases, no matter if the risk is very low with AS compared to RA. So I think that's the perception that they're, without reading the fine details, they've slapped it on the class and they've slapped it on every indication, which makes it very tricky to, uh, to, to use. Yeah, but I wanna make a comment about that. So I've looked at the integrated safety analysis of baricinib, tofacinib, uh, upatacinib, and filgotinib. And it turns out that in their integrated safety base uh, database, and if you look at mace and malignancies, the rates are almost identical with all four yes. drugs. And I'm not sure, I actually think the FDA is correct. I think it should be a class effect. The fact that there isn't a study with baricinib, there isn't a study with hepatocinib, there isn't a study with pagodinib, doesn't mean that if you didn't do the study, you wouldn't get the same result. <laughs> so if you're looking at safety, which is what the FDA looks at, Right, it's it's not unreasonable. Now, you can make an argument either way, but going to other diseases is unreasonable. The patients, certainly with inflammatory bowel disease, are much different than the patients with rheumatoid arthritis. The patients with ankylosing spondylitis are so much different. Uh, their comorbidities are different. Their risk factors are different. PSA, you know, in some ways is closer to RA. But again, it's not RA. No. So why you would go to all those diseases 
And the EMA didn't do that. EMA was specific to tocosinib, specific for RA. Yeah, excellent. And I think it'll be interesting in the UPA Select program, one arm is adalimumab in the same patient population, same disease duration, et cetera. And they've extended that arm for quite a length of time. So it's almost like they've done that mini study for us. And we look forward to those results. So let's talk about this. Paper. Oh, but, but, but I, just, I just want to make one comment. The select compare, which is what you're talking about, which is a 10-year study. And you're correct. It really goes for a long time, which is what we're going to talk about embarrassingly <laughs> in a moment. Um, the fact of the matter is that the, there were very few patients compared to strategy. Strategy had 5,000 patients. Uh, this is, uh, you know. Much smaller. So, yeah. So you really can't make the determination. Okay, so we're talking about an x-ray paper. Um, rheumatologists always like to know that a drug inhibits progression to, uh, so it's not an expensive NSAID. Do you do many x-rays anymore, Roy? We're finding that with ultrasound in our clinic and a bit of MR, we're hardly doing x-rays unless there's a reason. So when the first patient first presents, and I have the diagnosis of RA. I do do an X-ray. It'll be normal then. What? It'll be normal, normal at, at presentation, pretty much. But, well, it depends upon when the patient comes in. I'm saying at my first visit. So the patient, oh. if the patient has a month of disease or three months of disease, maybe not. Right? It usually is negative. But if they have, um, you know, a year of disease, a year or two years of disease, which is not uncommon. Uh, you can find erosions, but that's the only time I do the x-ray. That's the only time I do the x-ray. Um, and uh, doing ultrasound or doing uh, uh, MRIs, I don't do many of those either. Mm -hmm. And the reason being that all the drugs that we use inhibit radiograph progression. Mm -hmm. So if I use a drug, if I use, a, we're going to talk about Barrison in a moment, and if I start the patient methotrexate, they don't respond in four months the way that we want to, and I add baricitinib at four milligrams, not two milligrams as in the US, but four milligrams as you can in Australia, plus methotrexate, I know I'm going to limit radiographic progression in 95%, you know, 98% of patients. And um, if the patient does very, very well clinically, but they still have progression, which I could find about an ultrasound or MRI. What am I going to do? And how do I know the drug I'm going to switch him to is going to be as clinically as effective? Because now the patient's functioning, sleeping, and doesn't have fatigue, and you know can work. How do I know the drug is going to, is that I'm going to switch into is going to work as well, and it's not going to inhibit radiographic progression? So I I actually don't do much imaging anymore. Right. Well, uh, I agree with you. We only do ultrasound in the seronegatives we see very early, very inflammatory story, but nothing defined. And we're just looking for some subclinical synovitis. And the only other one I ever do it in is someone in remission who we want to taper. If there's some subclinical synovitis, the taper and cessation will be unsuccessful. But if they've got nothing there, then your taper is much more likely to be successful. So like you, we're doing it less and less and less over time. Yeah, so but let's I think talk the, about... the, 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 yeah those, yeah, those two instances are reasonable. Yeah, yeah. I would agree. So let's talk a little bit about this paper. Um, it's the RA Beyond study. Can you tell us how that was put together, please? So 
uh, in the Barron Center in the clinical trial program, the phase three program, um, there were four studies, right? And, and several of those studies, three of those studies looked at radiographic regression. And they looked at radiographic regression as, the, as all the drugs do, you know, over three months, over six months, over a year. Uh, that's how long the studies go. But in RA Beyond, we, which was a long-term extension, right? So the patients who did well, uh, could tolerate the drug, maintained, were maintained in the study. And, that, and th those were the studies that fed into, the phase three studies fed into RA Beyond. So it was already begin, uh, the patients who were methotrexate naive, uh, the patients who were TNF failures, the patients who were conventional synthetic DMARC failures. And what we were interested in, and interesting enough, we, we haven't seen another report of this. What happens long-term with radiographic progression with patients on a drug? Now, we know that initially, uh, they all work. They don't work in everybody, but they work in the vast majority. But is that radiographic progression still inhibited five years later? So we had an initial uh, paper that was the two-year paper, which suggested that it did. But two years in a chronic disease isn't very long. So we now have the five-year paper, which is lengthy. And it's the only one that I've seen which has looked at radiographic regression in a number of patients. Did you have good retention through the five years or was the patients not doing well who may have progressed dropped out? That's true, they did, right? The patients who didn't do well on the drug uh, dropped out. Patients had side effects dropped out. If I remember correctly, it was about a third of, pay, of uh, patients who did that. Um, so, as we all know in clinical practice, uh, if you start a drug, uh, any drug in a patient with newly disease, uh, you know, probably 80% respond uh, right away. Uh, but how many maintain that response? Uh, you know, it, it probably is 60%, 65% over a prolonged period of time. And that's kind of what we saw in, in, in RA Beyond. There were differences in studies because we had early RA. And we had late RA, we had TNF failures, and there was a difference between those two, obviously. Okay. And um, <clears throat> can you tell us a little bit about how you analyzed the x-rays and, and the sort of methodology of what you did so that we can talk about the results? Yeah, so the radiologist looked at the x-rays, right? <laughs> so they, they, I mean, I didn't look at, I did look at the x-rays in, in my own patients, but the radiologist really did that. So they had several campaigns. So there was a campaign in uh, you know the at uh, the end of the first year or six months of the study or one year of study depending upon the study. That was one campaign, and then they had a second campaign after two years, right? We were looking at what had happened over the two years, and they had a third campaign, which is what this was: reanalyzing the data over uh, three years. Um, I can tell you that uh, about three quarters of the patients, we had x-rays all the way through. Okay, right? so that's so very high. No, right. Yeah. There was no imputation of data. The patients where we didn't have all the x-rays, it was about 25%, um, you know, was, we used linear extrapolation uh, from, from the last yeah. uh, 
last one. Yeah, I was going to ask you, should we know anything about the stats or is it pretty straightforward? Because you taught me that you shouldn't analyse studies where you have early disease, late disease, TNF failure, TNF naive, all mixed in together. So what we did was we actually separated that in the paper. So we talk about the early disease, we talk about the conventional synthetic DMARC failures, and we talk about the TNF failures. And we showed tables for each of those three. Uh, the results were fairly similar. And tell us those key results so that uh, the clinician can have a takeaway message. Aracidinib works. <laughs> and it, it works better That's, if you were... Were better if you were naive than if you were a failure? Yeah, so uh, the answer to the question is, so baricidinib did work. It worked in all three patient populations, and there was significant inhibition of progression. But clearly, it works better uh, in the patients who are naive. And what we also found was, was in these studies, there were switches, right? The patients were um, put on placebo, plus methotrexate, let's say, and then if they uh, uh, didn't have a response, they would switch to uh, baricinitib, or after a period of time, uh, they rolled over the LTE, they were put on baricinitib. The patients who started baricinitib, right, all did better than the patients who were switched later on. And of course, you know, uh, anyone, what would you expect? And that's what you would expect because radiographic progression doesn't go away, right? If you have progression, you don't get back to normal. So yeah. if you have six months of progression, it's going to be there. Uh, but baricidinib does work uh, uh, well. We had an adalimium arm in one of the studies, an RA beam, and that worked well as well. Um, so the earlier you start the, the biologic or the target synthetic, in this case, it's mostly target synthetic, the more likely it is that you won't have radiographic progression. And you did measure some STIs of efficacy. Were you able to show that disconnect that was shown with the TNFs where you can stop progression even in those people who you can't adequately control their inflammation? Right, so that wasn't the aim of the study, right? right. Because this is a long-term extension. So the patients in the, in the study uh, all uh, really responded well. If I remember correctly, like 80%, uh, maybe a little bit higher, they were in SDI low disease activity. Um, so we really didn't look at that. Um, what you're talking about with the disconnect uh, to me has always been a little strange. Um, I remember Peter Lipsky actually presenting that for the first time with infliximab and showing that infliximab will, will inhibit radiographic progression even if a patient doesn't respond. To which my reaction was, what do I care? I'm not going to continue the infliximab, right? Uh, <laughs> but uh, my guess is that baricidinib will actually do the same. But why would you continue the drug if the patient is not uh, doing well? Doing well, fair enough. And was there a dose effect? Does the two actually contribute to preventing progression? Yeah, so that's a really good question. We couldn't answer it. And the reason why we couldn't answer it was because they, in uh, beyond, there was a group that if they achieved the remission in RA beginning, the methotrexate uh, population, or if they achieved uh, LDA, and this is CDI, uh, LDA, CDI remission, uh, in the patients who are in conventional synthetics, 
then there was a group that was moved down from four milligrams to two milligrams. And if they didn't respond, they could go back up to four milligrams. But if they responded again, you could go down again. So it was very, very difficult, uh, actually impossible to risk that we asked the statisticians, I don't know how many times, uh, to try and tell us whether there was a difference between two and four. Uh, but but, but we, we really don't know. We do know that the two works, but we don't know how well it works uh, versus the four. Excellent. And the only other thing might be monotherapy. Was there enough not on methotrexate to comment on radiological progression, mono versus combo? Yes. And mono still works. So not works quite as well, not, not quite as well as combo. Yeah, that's the question. So you're better on combo always, unless you just can't tolerate MTX and there's still efficacy with mono. Because the mono population here is about 25, 30%. Yeah, but the progression on mono is not quite as good as, uh, you know, it isn't quite as inhibited as combination, but it is inhibited, right? So when, you, when you're speaking to the patient, right, and, and you're getting the patient input into this, how are you doing? You know, I can't stand the methotrexate or I have headaches with the methotrexate, noise with the methotrexate. But on the mono, I am functioning well, right? And radiographic progression is inhibited to a fair extent. You know, that's really reasonable. Yeah. Okay. But, but I, I always try and keep combination. I do try and keep combination. But the truth of the matter is, when practice, um, probably two-thirds of patients are a mono, well, once they get into remission or persistent low disease activity. And that's kind of an issue that talking about this uh, perception from surveillance. The mono market here, you can't get Actemra and tocilizumab for love or money. It's all gone into COVID treatment, so there's none available for our patients, and we've had to switch everybody off, the GCA patients, the RA patients. We don't have a second six inhibitor. So the jacks are the mono market. And until people actually look at the fine print of surveillance, that mono group is struggling at the moment. So and any why, other fine- Why, 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 why is that? Why, why because they've got this perception, they got this perception the jacks are now dangerous for as a class for every disease. So there's a lot of yeah, educating so that needs to needs needs to happen. Yeah, so I want to make one comment about that. So you you talked about the FDA. The FDA went all diseases, and they said it's all diseases and only after TNF. So I think that's draconian. That's a strong word, but I'm going to use that word. And the reason why it's draconian is for the patient that you just talked about. So if a patient you put on methotrexate or conventional synthetic, they don't do well, and they can't tolerate methotrexate. So you have to take them off methotrexate. And if you take them off methotrexate and you go to a TNF, the TNFs don't work that well as monotherapy, right? No matter what other people say, they don't work as well. So what would you go to? Well, you go to an IL-6, right? Because an IL-6 works better, but you can't get an IL-6, right? So, but let's assume you could get an IL-6. So you do three months of methotrexate, and then you do three months of an L6 and it doesn't work. And you go to a TNF as monotherapy, right? And it doesn't work. Now we're at nine months if you're really, really fast. And how much disease activity has there been? 
How much comorbidity has there been? We know the VTEs are related to inflammation. We know that MACE is related to inflammation. We know that malignancy is related to inflammation. So the FDA says, don't use this drug because it's not as good as a TNF, although it's probably a lot better than a conventional synthetic, the nine months, right? And for many rheumatologists, it might be a year, year and a half. It doesn't make sense to me. Fair enough. So any take home message for the clinician, Roy, from this paper? From this paper, yes. So th this is a paper which shows that over five years, baricinib does inhibit radiographic progression, both two and four milligrams. Super, we thank you for your time. Greatly appreciated. If you want to know more about this paper and others uploaded to the CSF website this month, you get detailed slide kits are available in the publication section at cytokinesignaling.com. Subscribe to the podcast, give us some five-star ratings, check it out on iTunes, podcast media, and give us some feedback. Let us know what you think. Thank you so much for your time. We're greatly appreciated. Thank you, Peter. You're welcome.